Welcome to the Bama Podcast, episode 10 with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we're covering Genesis 15 through 17, continuing our look at the evolving partnership between God and Avram. So Marty, uh, we're kind of pretty deep into this at this point. Um, Why don't you give me just a little bit of a review to kind of catch us up, make sure we have the picture, the foundation in mind that, that we've established so far before we move into this next phase of, of, of Ram's partnership with God. Yeah, absolutely. And this is important. We're going to do this on a pretty regular basis. Sometimes we'll do it in the discussion groups. Sometimes we'll do it on the podcast. But um, making sure that we go back and re-review is what increases our familiarity with this larger narrative. So uh, it's a good time to do that. So it's good that you, you bring that up. But we have Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, we talked about it being the preface a few podcasts back. And what you really had was the author or authors of Genesis uh, setting up uh, a narrative that begins with this preface about origins. It wants to tell us who this God is and who are we as mankind and, and what is the core struggle that we struggle with. And so you had these two, it kind of went through this two rounds of creation uh, myth narratives that had been recaptured, retold um, subversively uh, retold from folklore that they were used to. And essentially, the author of Genesis is making this this case that God isn't who you think he is. Creation's not what you think it is. This God is crazy about creation. He loves it. He thinks creation is good. And this God isn't out to destroy creation. This God is out to restore it, redeem it, save it and invites us as these partners made in his image to join him. But that means we're going to need to be like God. And the thing that we've run into in the preface, the thing that God has shown us in the stories as the uh, Genesis account tells it is he's a God that knows when to say enough. He's a God that knows when to stop creating. He's a God that knows when to stop destroying And we are invited to join him in that. That is the piece of the divine we carry with us. We know how to stop. We know how to say enough. We can be like God in that regard. Uh, We are not gods, but we can be like God, made in his image by being people that know when to turn our creativity off and when to set it aside and just appreciate and rest in the goodness. Or know where our creative powers can be destructive and know how we can destroy relationships and to know how to stop that cycle as well. Uh, We know how to say enough. But that's going to require trust because we can't get addicted to productivity. We can't get addicted to creation. We have to know that who we are and what we've created, what God has created, and the things that we're doing in partnership with him is enough. It's okay. We don't have to keep producing. We don't have to keep creating. We don't have to keep impressing. We don't have to keep going. We can stop. And we we can't let our fears and our insecurities uh, drive the conversation because if they do, it's going to really get in the way of our relationships. Um, We saw that with Cain and Abel. We even saw it with Adam and Eve. We definitely see it with Noah and this cycle of vengeance between him and Ham. And you got to know where to turn that... that, uh, that God-like part of us, the image of Godness in us, we, we need to know how to turn that off and when to use it appropriately and when to, to let, it, let it be. So that's what we've learned. And, and kind of right in the point of the story, in the, at the end of the preface where you're beginning to think like, it's just, this is just hopeless, this is who man is, and it's who God is, and it's never going to get any better, we get introduced to Avram. 
We get introduced to a guy who's willing to put his legacy and his own name aside, unlike the people of Babel in the story that preceded it, uh, who were out trying to make a name for themselves, really worried about legacy, really worried about having to be uh, scattered, the text said, and having to wander. And so they were trying to settle. They're trying to build a tower and make a name for themselves. And uh, instead we meet Avram, a guy that says, well, my name isn't that important. It's not as important as another person's dignity and another person's provision. So we're going to take care of Sarai and we're going to marry this barren woman. This is who Avram is, somebody who sees the world differently and is like God in his ability to put himself to the side and see and notice other people. And so God comes immediately in the story and partners with Avram and says, Avram, I, if you'd be willing to partner with me, I've got a job for you because I'm trying to put the world back together and I'm looking for partners. So I'm going to lead you to a land that you don't know anything about. And, uh, and we're just going to get this thing started. And Avram says, great, I'm in. And so then God responds with, okay, I'm going to give you this whole land, Genesis 12. And anybody reading the Genesis account is thinking, just having read the Tower of Babel story, this is not going to be good because Avram's going to settle. Avram's going to, God promised him the land. Avram's going to settle. He's going to build a tower and he's going to make a city and he's going to make a name for himself. But instead he doesn't do that. He builds a different kind of tower, a tower to God. We call them altars. And he pitches his tents and he knows that God is, God and his promises are the things that are permanent. Uh, they're the things that we make a, we stake a claim on, but we, we are mobile and we are flexible and we move in order to respond to the call that God puts on our life. So he, uh, he pitches his tents and everywhere he goes, he builds altars, a different kind of tower to God. Now, this doesn't mean that Avram's perfect because we see him struggle with trust. He's just like you and I. So as he's trying to figure out how to trust the story and how to trust that God's got his back and that he doesn't have to worry and he doesn't have to be driven by fear, he struggles with what that looks like. What does it mean when there's a famine in the land? Um, do you put your trust in Egypt? Is that the responsible thing to do? Is that the stewardship thing to do? Or do you sit and wait. What does that discernment process look like? And so he goes down to Egypt with this plan of how he's going to take care of himself and it backfires. And instead of being able to get a bunch of uh, blessing and take off under the cover of nightfall, uh, he ends up for a moment losing his wife to Paro. And, uh, and he learns a big lesson and he takes that lesson with him. And through that decides that he is going to go back to this idea of uh, God being uh, the thing that's permanent and him being the thing that's mobile. So as he stands in a field arguing with Lot, arguing with uh, uh, his brother, quote unquote, uh, he realizes, I don't know how God's going to fulfill his promises. I, I think it's going to have to come through this brother of mine, this nephew of mine, Lot, uh, but the one thing I've learned is that there's a lot of things I don't understand. And Avram takes this newfound humility that he discovered through his mistakes, and he lets Lot go. And he lets him go twice, because uh, he lets him go in the very next chapter. Because he realizes that the one thing he can stand for is the things and the character and the nature of God. So wherever he knows what he's supposed to do, he does that. And then he lets God figure out the details. So Avram's really showing us in this story, he's showing us what it means to trust. He's not perfect. He struggles as much as any of us do, uh, and he gets it wrong, 
but he doesn't let his mistakes, he does not let the end of Genesis 12 define his story, uh, which is what I love. Avram's worst chapters are not what we know Avram by. He has them. He has some really ugly chapters in his story, but Avram's going to keep moving and he's going to let his mistakes teach him humility and he's going to continue to walk with this God. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to see there. And even when he makes the good choices, he's steadfast in that. Like you said, he let Lot go twice. Correct. So he makes a good choice and then he has another opportunity where he could say, eh, you know, now that I think about it. Yeah. But he lets him go again. Yeah, this guy's made of some stuff. I don't know what that saying I'm I'm grappling for is here, but Avram's uh, made of some some really stout goods because he's he's got this uh he he's got this prophetic push the envelope, go against the flow part of his makeup and his design. He's also got he's also a person of conviction. And uh that really helps him follow follow God, because following God's going to go contrary, uh, going to be counterintuitive, it's going to go against the flow, and you're going to have to be pretty resolute if you're going to be faithful in that. And we see that in Avram. We don't see perfection. Uh, we don't even see a cape and a giant A on his chest. We just see a guy who is, uh, just see a guy who's, who's, who's got what it takes to follow God down the path that he's calling him down. Are you sure the cape's not in the Midrash? Maybe. Maybe we can make one. Yeah. Yeah. So as uh, as Avram tries to learn what it means to trust, uh, we're going to go with him on that journey, right? Correct. So let's uh, get started here. Genesis 15. Yeah. We're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to start moving a little faster. Um, when we get to 16 today, we're going to kind of, uh, we need to start high stepping it through Genesis a little bit anyway. Uh, if we're going to make it through the Bible by the time I die, um, we're going to need to pick up the pace. So. Uh, but we're going to start in Genesis 15 where we left off. Yeah, and before we get started, I guess I should probably mention that we do have a presentation that goes along with this. Uh, we've got a little chunk of Genesis 15 here, and we've got a, a couple pieces that we want to be able to show you uh, what that looks like in the text. So uh, check out com or scroll down in your podcast app that you're listening to and, and check out the presentation, follow along with us. Yes, absolutely. Yep, so we're going to have the first little bit of Genesis 15 in that presentation uh, that Brent talked about, because I want to be able to show you one of the principles that we've mentioned before. Uh, But I'm just going to start reading there. After this, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Now, if we remember where this story is taking place, Avram's just let Lot go for the second time. And I suggested that Lot is his one resource that he thinks his family line is going to come through. God promised him descendants. He's married a barren wife. It's got to come through Lot. And some people have always pushed back on that when I've taught this class in the past. But we see this. Look at what Avram says. Look at his response. God says, God God kind of like jumps in and starts cheering, encouraging Avram, cheering him on saying, I am your shield. I am your great reward. Don't be afraid. Yeah, go Avram. You're getting it. You're doing it. And Avram responds like this, but Avram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? So Avram's response to God is he says, he's, he's a little frustrated. He's a little cranky. Uh, 
he's he's kind of had enough. He's like, I'm not having this great reward thing. Like, tell me again how you're going to be my great reward now that I've just given up uh, my promise. Uh, I've just let I've let my promise go. And now the thing on his mind is his descendants, because Lot was the way that he saw his family his descendants and the line that God promised him coming through Lot. And so in his mind and in his eyes, the only thing that he can imagine, the only place his imagination can take him is his servant. The next in line would be Eliezer, who's not even a blood relative. It's the the head of the household, the chief servant of of Avram's Bedav. Uh, That's the next guy in line. And he's like, this is a lousy story, God. How do you tell me great reward? And Avram said, uh, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, probably worth stopping here and noticing in that second paragraph there, something happened that we've talked about before. And, and we didn't have a presentation when we talked about it before, so I want to be able to show it to us. Uh, we, we mentioned that when you have a conversation in the Hebrew, and it talks about uh, one of the characters saying something, and then they say the line, and then the text will say, and they said, and there's nothing in between them. It's a Hebraic way of saying these are two separate conversations. If it's all one conversation, you don't repeat the phrase, but Avram said. So if you actually go to the next slide there, you'll see these two, uh, the next slide in your PDF shows you these two phrases. So God says, let's follow Let's go back up to the top and follow this conversation one more time. God says, do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield. I am your great reward. But Avram said, sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? But Avram said, now what did we, can you remember, Brent, what we talked about when this phrasing happens like this? Uh, These are two separate conversations. So what conclusion can we draw after that first phrase? Uh, The Lord had no response to his initial question. Right. God was silent. God said nothing. Um, We saw this in the Tower of Babel. Uh, they say, hey, let's go make bricks. And God's like, cool. I got no problem with that. And then they use the bricks to make a name for themselves. And that's when God steps into the story. Um, and, and we have this here again. God says, I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. And Avram says, how can that be a good thing? Because my descendants are coming through my servant. And God's response is, I don't want to tell you, Avram. I know how this is going to work out, and you don't need to know. But Avram comes back in and he demands an answer. It's almost, it would be like saying, I said, <laughs> I don't know if you heard me, God, but I'll say it again. And this time it's even, it's even more curt. Uh, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The second time he says it, it even has more spit more frustration, more fire. The first one is a little bit more formal. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer? The second time it's just like, hey, you haven't given me any kids and this is coming through my servant. Like it doesn't even include his name. My servant is who's going to have my descendants. Avram's struggling here. Again, he's like you and me. 
and he's struggling with the promise of God. Can we make any assumptions about the amount of time that has passed between these two statements? We can't make any assumptions, but it's a wonderful question because you wonder if Avram asked the question the first time, how long did he sit on that question without hearing from the Lord? Uh, Minutes, days, years, we really don't know, but God never responded the first time. And by the time he asked the question a second time, he's now, he's now got, got some spit and some fire in there. And so God, this time God responds. And I love that because it shows a God that's in relationship. Apparently God doesn't want to tell Avram. He doesn't want to tell him, and we'll look at why here in just a moment, but he doesn't want to give him the information, but Avram's pleading for it, demanding it, wanting it. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little insight, but this insight's going to screw the story up. But here we go. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. He says, Avram, you got it wrong. Your imagination is not big enough. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, and again, you have that phrase right there, by the way, God, God says, go up and count the stars. And Avram apparently goes out and says nothing. And he just stands there, maybe in awe, maybe in whatever, we don't have those pieces. But, and then God says, that's how your offspring will be. So will your offspring be. And Avram, and here he is. So in the midst of his struggle, Avram believes the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So in the midst of this whole conversation and the struggle he's having with God, Avram chooses to lean into the story and trust God's promises. Now, what's interesting about this story is I feel like there's a huge life lesson for me personally. I've carried this around. I think it's useful for others, but I'll let you guys be the the, the jury on that one. But I, I love this portion of the story because it reminds me that sometimes I think I want answers, but God knows I don't need them. Because if I had the answers, I would screw my story up. Because what happens is Avram's going to take this little bit of information that God gives him, and he and Sarah are going to screw the story up. Oh, well, if it's going to come through our our descendants, my seed, my loins, well, if it's going to come through me, well, it, then it's not going to come through you. So we must, we must need to sleep with somebody else. So go sleep with Hagar and have children. That must be. And again, they're going to, because they don't have God's perspective, because they don't have God's plan, because they have limited foresight, uh, they, they're going to screw their story up. So I'm always reminded by this portion of the story. Sometimes God is silent because that's exactly what I need. Because if I knew what God was going to do, I would either mess my story up, I wouldn't walk through the next door, I wouldn't head around the next corner, um... And we see that here with Avram. Avram demands answers. God kind of gives him a little bit of information. And I know that our gut wants to say, well, why didn't he just tell him all the information? Uh, So he didn't screw up his story because that's not how life works. And every single one of us knows that. It's not how our journey with God works. It's not how our faith works. And that's not what faith looks like. And so the story is trying to teach us something, uh, something bigger. So, but Uh, Then we're going to read the rest of the story here because something interesting happens. 
Uh, but Genesis 15, Avram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Avram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So again, Avram's kind of in this cranky mood. Avram's kind of demanding some collateral here. Like he's like, okay, I've, this is hard. This is getting hard for me to just keep putting my faith in this story. I do believe it was credited to him as righteousness, but he's still human. He's still just like you and me. Avram says, how can I know? I, I need some kind of collateral. So here's what God says. God says, bring to me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Okay. So Avram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. So the birds, but the birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down. So what strikes you about that last verse there that we read, Brent? Um, That's weird. (laughs) Right. And why is it, what's interesting about what God says and what Avram does? Well, God said, bring me these things. And so Avram brings them and cuts them in half. Right. And God didn't tell me. God didn't say anything about that. Yeah. God didn't say anything about what to do with them. He just said, bring me these. And apparently Avram knows exactly what God's asking because he just immediately knows upon the request what he's supposed to do with these animals. And in fact, some cultural background will tell us that Avram does know exactly uh, what to do because this is a, uh, God is asking him to set up a, a covenant. Uh, this was actually a, a betrothal covenant in the ancient Eastern world. It was a covenant. It was a covenant that you made upon being in, becoming engaged and betrothed to somebody. On the next slide in your presentation, you'll actually see a picture. Uh, you'll see a picture there of a, a depiction, an artist uh, rendition of what this kind of covenant would look like. What what you do is you take these five animals, uh, you cut them in half, and you arrange them where there's going to be a natural uh, crevice or a divot, and it'll form like kind of like this ditch where the blood will drain, and it's going to form what's called a blood path. And oftentimes you'll hear people reference this as a blood path covenant. Um, this is something that Avram would have been familiar with in a Sumerian Middle Eastern culture. This is why when God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, and these two birds— he knows immediately what to do with them. And so he immediately arranges a covenant because he just demanded collateral from God, some kind of guarantee, some kind of receipt for the the promise. And God says, well, go set up a covenant. Let's go set up a betrothal covenant, an engagement covenant. So Avram sets up this covenant, cuts the animals in half. The blood drains to the middle and forms what's called the blood path. So the the three animals are cut in half. The birds are not, but the birds are arranged opposite each other. Right. And that's, most people think that's because the birds are so small that in order to drain their blood, you you can't cut them in half. You're going to drain their blood by uh, beheading them and and draining their blood that way. So, um, but yeah, it creates this, it takes these clean, sacred animals and forms a, a covenantal blood path. Now, how this blood path works in the Middle Eastern culture in the ancient world. And there are even a couple cultures, by the way, that still hold on to this practice. So in, it's a slightly different in its form, but it's it's the same general idea. And it's even practiced to this day in some of those uh, more ancient, more Bedouin uh, cultures. But you form this blood path, and then there are two parties in the covenant. 
And like we mentioned, this is usually an engagement covenant. And so there's a greater party and a lesser party. And this covenant is being made between the father of the bride and the groom-to-be. And the greater party in this covenant is going to be who, Brent? Uh, God. Okay, but in well, the... So in the, the father of the bride. The father of the bride in the cultural uh, illustration, right? So the father of the bride has the upper hand. He has the daughter that the groom wants. And so he is the lesser party. And so in this blood path covenant, the lesser party has to go first. And they usually put on these white robes and they walk through the blood path, kind of stomping their feet. And as the blood splashes up onto their robes, it's a symbolic Eastern way of saying, if I don't take care of your daughter, you may do this in my blood. I'll put my life on it. And then the greater party, which is, as you mentioned, the bride's father, he's going to walk through on the second one. And he's going to say, okay, if I don't give you a worthy virgin as a bride, my daughter, you may do this in my blood. It's a covenantal agreement that if we don't deliver, uh, we'll put our life on it. We're putting our life on the fact I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. Now, here's what's interesting. In the in the covenant that we're talking about in Genesis 15, you are already going there. Who's the greater party? God. Okay, so that means that who should be walking through the blood path first? Avram. Avram is most definitely the lesser party. And Av- he definitely knows what's going on. And he definitely knows how this works. He's set up the covenant all on his own. He's totally aware of what's happening. Now, that verse I almost read uh, was verse 11 of chapter 15, and it says this, The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. Now, what does that tell you, Brent? Uh, they've been sitting there a while. Right. If I got birds of prey gathering, this wasn't just a couple minutes later. Avram set up this covenant and did nothing. And it's his turn to go through the covenant. And it's, it's when you're reading this with the cultural background, you realize Avram just got stuck in a corner of his own making. He's, he's in this cranky mood. He's demanding all this collateral And now he realizes, he remembers who he's dealing with. Oh, yeah, I remember I'm dealing with the creator of the universe here. I can't enter into a covenant, not this kind of intimate relational covenant. I can't deliver on my end of the bargain. I'm going to screw this up. And the moment my pinky toe steps in this blood path, I'm a dead man. And so we'll keep reading. And the sun was setting, Avram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord, which means, uh, that, that phrase in the Hebrew means uh, a terrifying, depressing darkness. Um, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go out to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed before the pieces between the pieces, excuse me. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. 
this land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So Avram falls into the sleep. He gets this little mini lecture from God, which we'll unpack here in a moment. And then what he sees is what, Brent? Well, does he see this? Yes, I, I would say the story implies that. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen. So, like, does he wake up? Is that is that what we're thinking? Either that or a vision or however we want to parse that. Hmm. So he sees this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appear and pass between the pieces. All right, now, so we've got smoke and fire. Now, can you think of anything in the Bible that's always represented by smoke and fire? Well, the presence of the Lord. Okay, always as, symbolized as by... Like, uh, in as after they leave Egypt, okay, you see the cloud and the, and, a, and the fire. Okay, a, a pillar of cloud, a smoke, and then fire by night. When he dwells in the tabernacle, we're told it's a pillar of cloud over the holy of holies, and then fire by night. So fire and and smoke symbolize the presence of God. But there are how many presences walking between the halves? Well, that would be two. That would be two. And so Avram gets this. God comes to Avram and says, Avram, I know you can't walk between the halves. So I'll tell you what. I'll walk through on both of our parts. I'll walk through on your behalf and I'll walk through on my behalf, which in this blood path covenant would be God saying, I know you're going to screw this up. But even when you screw this up, I will be the one to pay the price. I'll be the one that will offer the sacrifice. I'll be the one. And again, we see this same God showing up that's shown up all throughout Genesis 1 through 11. And if we're like, I don't know about all this blood path stuff, well, you can research that and look that up on your own. But it's going to be the same principle that we learned with Abraham and Isaac. We're at the end of the Isaac story. We haven't studied it yet, but the end of the Isaac story, most of us are familiar with it. God provides. We say on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And God's going to tell this message to Avraham over and over and over again. It's going to be the message that we say looks a whole lot like Jesus. And I would agree. This God that comes and says, I know you're going to make a mistake, but when you make a mistake, I'll be the one to pay the price. I'll be the one to up the ante. I'll be the one to take care and pay the bill. And so it's this incredible uh, lesson that Avraham learns in an incredibly vulnerable moment because he's kind of pushing He's pushing the envelope a little bit. He's kind of cranky. He's kind of stepping out of line. And God could really kind of throttle him and let him have it. But instead, God says, I'm, I'm going to teach you something about who I am. I am compassionate and I'm gracious. And I'm going to take care of you, even when you struggle, even when you screw it up, even when you make mistakes. But there's also consequences. So is there anything in that part we read there that seemed really odd or off or unnecessary to you, Brent, as we read that story? Well, it seems kind of strange that God is saying, I'm going to give you this lamb, I'm going to make a great nation of you. By the way, they're going to be slaves for 400 years. Yeah, that seems like a really weird place to like, give him a little mini lecture about what's coming. Like, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to, it's like the weirdest place for God to be like, oh, and here I'm going to foretell the slavery in Egypt. Why here? Why in the middle of this story? And the answer is, because we just got done in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, learning that Avram was struggling to trust the story and he went down to Egypt. And even though when we make mistakes, God's going to take care of us and God's going to forgive us, even though that's absolutely true without any 
without any exception, God's always going to love us and forgive us through those things. There are always going to be consequences. Trusting the story is an urgent matter because there's consequences. And so Avram went down and put his trust in Egypt. And what happened is Avram brought Egypt with him. Avram brought Egypt with him in his heart metaphorically, but Avram has also brought Egypt with him literally. So what else did he get from Pharaoh? He got goods, he got wealth, he got uh, he got um, he got camels, he got slaves. Right? He gets men servants and maid servants. We were told in Genesis twelve. And who is it that Avram's going to sleep with with this newfound information from God? God told him it was going to come from his his own descendants, not his servant. And so obviously him and his wife think, well, it's obviously not coming from us. So you now you got to sleep with Hagar. Hagar. And who is Hagar? Sarai's Egyptian slave. Uh, See, he's brought Egypt with him literally and metaphorically. And it's going to be this Egypt that he's brought with him, these consequences of him struggling to trust the story and the consequences of his mistake are going to shape him for the stories to come. And so the very next chapter in Genesis 16 is going to be the story of how Avram and Sarah come up with this great idea. They're going to uh, have children through Hagar. But that's going to backfire really poorly. But here I always like to pause and make one of those lesson moments where it's not that God has to get us out of Egypt. That's not going to be God's greatest challenge. This is something I picked up from my Rabbi Ray. Ray Vanderlaan, when we studied this in Israel. It's easy for God to get us out of Egypt. That's really no challenge for God. It's easy to get his people out of Egypt. What's going to be a whole lot harder is for God to get his Egypt out of his people. It's really easy to get his people out of Egypt. It's not as easy to get Egypt out of his people. And so because Avram has struggled and brought all of this Egyptian wealth out with him and put his trust in that provision, put his trust in Egypt in some sense, God now tells him in the middle of this struggle that he's going to take care of him. But the problem is, is that his descendants are going to carry this seed of Egypt in them, and he's going to have to get that Egypt out of them. And we all know that's where the story's headed. But it's always interesting to find that entering the story here. And maybe later, uh, maybe when we study Galatians in the New Testament, we'll come back to this because the rabbis notice that and do some pretty interesting things that Paul then references in the book of Galatians. But we'll leave us hanging for that one. Uh, but we get into Genesis chapter 16, and we're just going to kind of fly through this. I, I could recommend Rabbi David Foreman. Uh, he's got some great material on just the entire story of Hagar and Ishmael and uh and he's at Aleph Beta uh, on online there, Aleph Beta Academy. Um, but uh, he's he's done a lot of uh, incredible study here. But one of the things he pointed out as we kind of pass through this story, if you remember that principle we looked at earlier about, and Avram said, yada, yada, yada. And then Avram said, yada, yada, yada. That same principle is going to show up again here in the Hagar story. Hagar's being abused and mistreated. She's on the run. She runs away from Sarah and Avram's household. And an angel comes to her and the angel says, you need to go back. And then the angel says, and you realize that the angel says, you got to go back. And Hagar says nothing. I picture her with her hands crossed, her arms folded. 
and her kind of defiantly standing there saying nothing. And the and the angel says, "Listen, no, no, we'll we'll take care of you. You'll have lots of descendants. It'll be it'll be all right." And Hagar says nothing. And so the angel has to add, and then the angel finally gives this big blessing about Ishmael and who he'll be, and he'll have this great name, and he'll have this wonderful nation and people following after him. And then she finally says, okay, now God has seen me, which is going to become a theme in the next few chapters, by the way. But now God has seen me. Uh, God, God understands what I really want. And all kinds of commentary. I'll, I'll let Rabbi Foreman do that, but we need to keep moving. I want to end today with uh, Genesis 17. And so uh, you'll find that in your presentation. You'll find uh, Genesis 17, a, a screenshot of it sitting there so that we can look at it and you'll understand why here in just a moment. But let's go ahead and, and, uh, and in fact, do you want to read, Brent? How about you read Genesis 17? And uh, we're just going to read, say, through... Oh, verse 20. Let's just read what's on that screenshot through verse 21. All right. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Avram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Avram. Your name will be Avraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Avraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Avraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Avraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Avraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Yitzhak. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Yitzhak, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Avraham, God went up from him. Okay, now as you read that, did anything jump out at you? 
I felt like I was reading the same thing over and over again. Have we run into that before? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Where Can you remember where we ran into that before? Uh, that was uh, Noah uh, at the uh, right after they got out of the ark. Right after they got out of the ark. And there was kind of that second chiasm that talked about his covenant and the covenant I was going to make with him and all the earth and the covenant. And then I remember the covenant and there'd be a covenant and then there'd be a rainbow with a rainbow and the clouds and the covenant that he would remember the covenant and the remember and the covenant and the rainbow and the, all the earth and the descendants. And there, there was that really repetition. There was seven covenants. There was seven earth haaretz. There was five hanans, the clouds. There was three rainbows. There, there was all this repetition and the same thing kind of ends up showing here. So we may, and it's really deliberate and some of the same kind of repetition. So if you remember, Noah's covenant was made with Noah and the earth and everything on the earth. This is made with Avram and his descendants and all those that come after him. There's some real things that tie. So these two stories are probably going to be tied by the time we're done. But what other what other thing might you look for? Uh, well, we've we got to figure out if this is another chiasm, we got to figure out what the center of it is. Right. If we got something similar to the end of Noah, I would want to know. And in fact, uh, to just not waste any more time, it is. So if you go to your next slide on your presentation, you'll see I've taken some different colors and brought the chiasm out for you. So I, I always love to start from the outside. So you'll notice those red marks on your presentation. The phrase Avram fell face down in verse 3 and verse 17. If we were to go into the next one, notice uh, what he says about the name change. You will no longer be called Avram. Uh, this was your old name. This was your new name. And many kings will come from you. And then at the end of the story, this was Sarai's name, but this is her new name. And many peoples will come from her. Um, you'll notice the next level in the phrase everlasting covenant shows up. Uh, you'll notice the next level in foreigner shows up. Uh, right where you'd expect it to, uh, the next level in for the generations to come, leading us all to the middle of the center of the chiasm ends up becoming every male among you shall be circumcised. And so this story ends up becoming a mark of the covenant that they take with them and they wear. And it's also interesting as we just look at this story, this is where Avram finally gets more of the story where God explains exactly how it's going to come from uh, his descendants. And God gets to say it's going to come through Sarah. So he finally is starting to get all the, all the pieces of the picture, all the pieces of the puzzle, and uh, realizes how he perhaps maybe has blown it in the, in the story prior that we just looked at with Hagar and Ishmael. Um, but the center of this chiasm ends up becoming about circumcision, so why is that the center, and what's the big takeaway from that? Um, obviously, this ends up being a really important story and really defining for the Jewish people. Uh, circumcision is going to be a huge deal all the way through the New Testament and everything that circumcision represents. And so this story is going to be uh, really important, but you already pointed out this story is deliberately and obviously connected to which other story? Uh, the Noah story as they come out of the ark. And what, if you can remember, what was kind of our big takeaway about the covenant and God and the Noah story? What were kind of the standout things about what God was saying there at the end with the repetition? Uh, well, all of the responsibility fell on to God's side of the covenant. Because we talked about the suzerain vassal covenants. And who is it that usually had to keep the side of the covenant? 
the vassal. The vassal. But this God in the Noah story decides, I don't want you to lose it. I don't want you to forget about it. I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to be the one that remembers. I'm going to be the one that puts the sign in the sky somewhere you can't even lose it. And what we see here is we see an evolution in this partnership between God and his people. Because the sign has now been passed on to his people. God says, okay, now I'm going to give you the sign. Now I'm going to give it to you in a way you can't lose it. (laughs) Uh, Circumcision isn't going to be something you're going to misplace. Okay, so question about that. Yes. So earlier, Avram, God says, bring these animals. And Avram knows exactly what's going on. He's doing a blood path covenant. So he just sets it all up. When God says, every male among you shall be circumcised, does he have any idea what that even means? That's a great question. Like, that's a very odd uh, practice in the Middle Eastern culture. It'll be a very odd practice for much of human history and very defining for the Jewish people. So I'm not sure if he would know uh, what the backstory is there between God explaining exactly what circumcision is and how to do it, because I'm sure he wasn't equipped with that knowledge. Um, But that's a wonderful question. Do Do we know of any other cultures that do that? That's a good question, too. I'm I'm not aware, but it's not something I've necessarily looked into specifically uh, to answer that question. So that's a really good question. We'll I'm kick, not aware we'll of any other We'll kick that out to the did. listeners. If anyone knows sure. anything about this, let us know. Yeah, I'm I'm not aware of any that did. Uh, the whole idea behind circumcision was it was such a defining mark uh, on who you were because it was so different and nobody else did that. Uh, who would do that? Hey, yeah, why would you? <laughs> right. It's not something you're going to uh, to look for. So um, we have this, this sign of the covenant that God is passing on to his people. Unlike the story of Noah where he kept it, he says, I'm going to give it to you. Now I'm going to give it to you in a way you can't lose it. You're not going to lose this once you, but it is going to be yours to keep and it is going to require a step of obedience. So they still have to actually do the circumcision and they have to keep that commandment with all of their children. What we see here is we see God extending his expectations. The longer that his people walk with him and learn who he is and go down the path of this partnership, the more God is handing off more and more expectation more and more responsibility. He's expecting more. I don't like to use the word demanding more, but he's definitely upping the ante of relationships saying, okay, now that you've learned a little bit more, I expect more out of you. Now that you've learned a little bit more, I expect a little more out of you, which I always love to stop this conversation here. And it'll be a great place to end our podcast because it causes me to pause and think back, okay, we're now 4,000 years this side of this story. How much should we have learned about the character and the nature of God? Not only in 4,000 years, but we're 2,000 years this side of Jesus. We're 2,000 years this side of being empowered with the Holy Spirit in a special way. How much more, a little Calvachomer going on there for any of our listeners that know what just happened there. How much more does God expect out of us today? Understanding through the incarnated Christ, understanding through the resurrected Christ, understanding through the spirit what God wants and desires from his 
children, understanding about forgiveness, understanding about loving your enemies, understanding about grace, understanding about God's love in a way that they didn't understand in Avram's day. How much more does God expect from us than he even expected from Avram? But I love this point in the story because it shows me God walks with us. He always meets us where we're at and calls us forward. He always meets us exactly where we're at and calls us forward. He doesn't meet us where we're at and lets us stay there. He wants us to move, but nor does he expect us to be somewhere else. He always meets us where we're at and calls us forward, stands just out in front of us and says, take the next step. And so one of the great questions we'll ask ourselves as listeners, as students of the story here in Genesis 15, 16, 17, is what are the things that we're learning in our walk of faith? And where are the places that God's calling us? Because he's not just calling us to stay put. He's calling us just like Avram to chart some new ground and take the next step in the partnership and, and be able to show God our next step of faith. And uh, I just find the story of Ram very encouraging and, and a model for me as I try to walk through my own journey. Well, that was a jam-packed episode, Marty. It was. We covered some ground there. Covered a little bit of ground there. Yeah. So if you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you don't live on the Palouse, we hope that you're making your own discussion groups, getting with a group of people and wrestling through this stuff. And we'll be here if you got any questions. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. And you can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymaDiscipleship.com. Thanks again for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.